0: Can stand in honor of God's word Genesis chapter 22 beginning in verse 15 And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven And said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word again. I thank you uh, that, that these people are here. And, and, uh, and I thank you for the reason that we're here. First of all, because Jesus is alive. Um, and because we want to gather and celebrate His great name, we want to open up Your Word and, and hear from You. Um, so I pray that Your Spirit would come now and do that. Open our hearts to receive this with gladness. Open our ears to hear Your Word. Open our eyes to see Christ from the Old Testament. God, I thank You so much. We we acknowledge that we have not earned our right to be here. We have not earned our right to come to you in prayer, but that the only way that we can come is because of the sacrifice that Jesus has given of His life on the cross for our sins. And so we thank you for that. We praise you for that. Um, and it's in His name that we pray. Amen. So we we, be, we began last week, and I started off by reading to you two different statements from the gospel of Luke made by Jesus to give us the encouragement to open up the Old Testament and and discover its fullest meaning about Him and the idea is that some people would argue that when we come to the Old Testament and we find these Christological interpretations, which is what that means, we're, we're finding Christ in the Old Testament that when we do that, it's kind of a stretch from what's actually there um, some people would argue that if you go the route of discovering Christ in the Old Testament, that you, that you have to, that it takes away from the actual events of history. And so, you know, you have to disregard um, some of the, the history. And in light of that, that same argument, I want to begin today by clarifying even more the validity of what we call a Christocentric view of nature Christocentric, Christ at the center. Um, the point last week was that Jesus told us this is what we're supposed to do. And He opened the eyes of His disciples to see this view of Scripture, to see the grand narrative. They didn't understand how the resurrection of the Messiah fit into the Old Testament writings. And so He opened their eyes and they could see it. And so that, to me, is enough. Jesus said, here's what you do. And He helped them do it. But that's what we're going to do. But but like I said, some people don't think that that's, that's pr- a proper handling of Scripture. And what I want to talk about today is, is that we have to understand that when it comes to the Old Testament, it's not an either-or situation. Um, we don't have to decide whether we fall on... Christocentricity, and we believe Christ is at the center of all Scripture, or we believe in the literal history of the Bible. We don't have to pick. They, they don't come against one another. They actually prove one another. So we don't have to decide. Um, and some people would argue that we have to disregard history if we want to say it's about Jesus. And, and we don't believe that. Um, others would argue that if you believe in the history... ...of the Old Testament and believe that the stories are true... ...that if you want to find Jesus, you have to kind of add to it... ...or make something up or just kind of really stretch your mind... ...to see how this might include Jesus. Um, But this is not true. We don't believe in an either-or reading of of Scripture. We believe and we read the Old Testament with a both-and mentality. It's both. So, yes, the Old Testament narratives, the stories... Are to be read in a literal sense Now if you, you, you don't do that with genres like poetry and prophecy Those are different But I'm talking about the literal stories The narratives of the Old Testament When we read those Those are real stories They're, they're meant to be read as such They're the true stories of the Hebrew people The events actually happened as we read them They are history They're true as a matter of fact, there are over twenty three thousand archaeological digs that have taken place to prove everything that the Bible claims was going on in, in that time period. The book this book is a historical book. There have been no discoveries that disprove anything the Bible ever says. None. If somebody says, Well, what about you know this, what they found? They're wrong because there's there have been none. So this is a historical book written by over 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years on three different continents. And it all comes together as a historical book. It is history. And we can read it as such. And we can use the way we determine any history. Was George Washington the president? Well, let's just read history. We can do that the same way with scripture. And we discover that it is true. But it is also a holy book authored by God himself himself carrying along human authors. Most of the authors, I said it was written by over 40 different human authors, most of them didn't know that anybody else was writing or would ever write. They were just, they didn't know that their writings would be grouped together in what we call the Bible. They didn't know. They were, just, they were simply writing as the Holy Spirit inspired them and carried them along to write. And then we come along and we put it all together and it's our scriptures. There are several different genres of writing. Like I've already said, poetry, there's narrative, there's uh, gospel, there's prophecy, there's all these different things. And, and this book comes together so uniquely and so uniform around the person of Jesus that it's, it's simply incredible. When you, you, if you study this stuff, it's literally mind-boggling how it all just it gets to Jesus. And it's all about Jesus. And so it is a historical book. And it is a holy book. So we don't have to choose a side. We don't have to decide whether we're going to be on the the, the team of the, the, the... The history majors and and the the scientists, or we're going to be the ignorant Christians who believe it's actually true. We don't have to pick. I can say yes, science, go, go, find out everything you can. God invented science. I'm not afraid of that. As far as history, dig, dig, uncover everything because it all will be proved to be true if we really search. And so we don't have to pick a side. We can believe in both, and we can believe in the history, and we can believe in the the spiritual nature of Scripture. But when we put these two together, which is how we read Scripture, this is called redemptive history. And we, we are supposed to read the Bible... And we, we need to learn how to read Scripture in its redemptive historical context, which means we put both of those together. The actual history and then also the spiritual narrative of God redeeming His people. We put them together. And that's what we're doing as we walk through the Old Testament with this flyover of the Old Testament. And I, and I want to help you guys in, in learning to read the Scripture that way. Because sometimes we, we, if we don't see the disconnect, or we don't see the connect. We, we misunderstand what it was all about, and we, we try to conjure up ways to understand what was going on, and it's not supposed to be like that. So, that's what we're doing in this series. So, today we're looking at another one of those historic narratives, a true story in Scripture. We'll look at its literal meaning and the history behind it, what actually happened in time... But we're also also going to see the redemptive nature and how it fits into God's purposes in salvation. So this is a true story with true characters, actual events, actual places. We don't have to take anything away from it. We can just read it and then we can also see these spiritual aspects. So I read from Genesis 22 and if you remember from last week, we've kind of skipped over some very popular stories ...in the Old Testament to get here. Um, this doesn't mean that those stories aren't important... ...or that they don't point to Christ... ...but for our purposes... Um, ...we're not focusing in all the all those stories... ...and I'll kind of hit on them briefly... ...as we get ourselves to where we are. Between Genesis 1 and where we are today... ...we've skipped about 2,000 years. So you see some stuff has taken place to get us where we are. Um, so after Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden... ...which is what we learned about last week... ...the sin and the fall... We find them with their first two children, Cain and Abel, in Genesis chapter 4. Um, This story, once again, most people know this story. It's very well known. Um, Abel was a uh, sheep farmer, a shepherd. Cain was a gardener. And when it came time to give their sacrifices to the Lord, Cain gave of his fruit. Abel gave of his animals, his livestock, the first fruits of his flock. God was pleased with Abel's offering. It says he regarded Abel's offering, but he did not regard Cain's offering. Cain gets angry, kills his brother. God curses him, banishes him from the garden. We we with a fairly popular story. So that happens in chapter 4. Chapter 5 is kind of like a genealogy unpacking the, the lineage of coming from Adam. In chapters 6 through 10, we read the story of the flood of Noah, and, and it ends with another genealogy. And we, we know the story. God looks down on mankind. He sees that they are wicked. Their hearts, or it says the, the hearts of man are evil from birth. They're getting increasingly more evil and wicked. And so he sends a flood and wipes out the earth, except for Noah and his family, because it says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so we see once again another act of free grace. God didn't have to save anybody, but He did through the, the ark. So that's chapter 6 through 10. In chapter 11 of Genesis, we read about the tower of Babel and, and the confusing of the languages. This Once again, very popular story. The people were, just like we are, once again wicked. And God looked down and saw that they were wicked. And their wickedness was, they wanted to build a tower to the heavens to make a name for themselves. And that was their sin. They want to make a name for themselves rather than glorifying God. And so he goes down. He confuses their languages so that they can't work together. And he scatters them over the whole earth so that they, they can't work together anymore. So by the end of chapter 11 of Genesis, there's a genealogy that gets us from Shem, who's one of Noah's sons, all the way to a man named Abram, who is the son of Terah. And Abram has a wife named Sarai. And the passage that we read today in Genesis 22 is about this man Abram, whose name was eventually changed to Abraham and, and his son Isaac. So that's where we are. We're going to talk about Abram today. Now, if you if you want to and kind of follow along, you can flip back to Genesis 12, and we're going to follow Abram along this this relationship that he has with the Lord. So, in Genesis 12, the first time we see Abram and God. This is God calling Abraham. This is the call. In the 12th chapter of Genesis, we read of the very first encounter, the first time we ever see God coming to this man, Abram. And just like I said, in chapter 11, we hear of the Tower of Babel, we see a genealogy, and then... There's, all, there's just this guy, Abram. Terah and Abram. That's, that's, uh, that's all we know. Terah had decided to take his family from a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. They're going to travel to Canaan, but they stop in a place called Haran. That's all we know. They're just traveling. They stop. We don't know much about them. There's nothing special about Abram. He's just another guy. More than likely, he was a worshipper of a pagan god named Nana, who was a moon god, because Ur of the Chaldeans and Haran, where they lived, were both seats of worship for this deity. So more than likely, Abram is just a a pagan who worships this false god. In chapter 12, God comes to Abram and speaks to him. And so the first thing we read in this relationship is a command... To pack up and start walking. And you could probably imagine that Abram was pretty surprised about this. In uh, in verse 1 of Genesis 12, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So, so God just shows up to this everyday, run-of-the-mill pagan, says, pack up your stuff, start walking. I'll tell you where to go once you start walking. Um, He promises to make him a great nation, that all the families of the earth will be blessed through him. And then in verse 4, So Abraham went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So Abraham packs up and leaves. God says, get up and go. Abraham." Starts walking. He's immediately obedient to God. Once again, that's really pretty interesting when you read the story, just kind of how it it worked out. Um, Abraham starts walking with his nephew Lot, simply out of obedience. Abraham was 75 years old at this time. He didn't know where he was going. God said walk, so he starts walking. No clue where he's going, because he had promised to make him a great nation. So Abram believed what God had said. So Abram is called... By God, and he is obedient to God in Genesis chapter twelve. Okay, um, flip over to chapter fifteen. This in this chapter, Genesis fifteen, is the first we read of a covenant between Abram and God. A few years have gone by. Abram Abram has had no children. There have been a few minor incidents with his family, and so God comes to Abram again, and He kind of reassures him, "I'm going to take care of you. I am going to." Continue and bless you. I'm going to give you many descendants, and and we can see that in chapter, or in verse five of chapter fifteen. And he, that's God, brought him Abram outside and said, "Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them." Then he said to him, "So shall your offspring be." So, so, so God takes Abram outside. He says, "Look at the stars." That's how many descendants you're going to have. And, and so he, he reassures him about what's going to happen. And then in verse six it says. And he, this is Abraham, Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Abraham believed what God told him and that belief that he had was counted to him as righteousness. So that means the faith that Abram had was credited to Abram. As his right standing with God, he was declared righteous or justified solely on his faith. He believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So he was, as we would say, justified by faith alone in God. So that's fifteen. So then he, in in that chapter, he he, he unpacks. The covenant, and he, they here you see the actual ceremonial ratifying of this covenant. This would include the sacrifice of animals. What they would do is they would cut the carcasses of these animals in half and lay the halves apart. And one person would walk through the middle of the halves. And that was like a symbol, like, I'm going to keep my word. In this covenant, a, a flaming torch passed through the carcasses. And this was this was God personified in such a way that God was passing through these carcasses. And the, the reason they'd done that, they called it cutting a covenant. And the reason they'd done that was basically to say... May what has happened to these carcasses happen to me if I don't keep my covenant. That's why they, they did a covenant that way. And so we see this ratifying of the covenant. This is sealing the covenant. And this flaming torch passes through the halves of the animals. And so God is saying, may this happen to me if I don't keep my promise to you, Abram. And then by the end of the chapter, God promises Abram, once again, he's going to have many offspring, and that they're going to inherit a piece of land to live on. So Abram will have numerous offspring, and they will have land to live on. Okay, chapter 17. You may have to flip, you may not. Now, this. Is, is God comes to Abram again, but this time it's a little different. If you notice every time God comes to Abraham, there's a little bit more that He does, but it's always very similar. It's always about the same in what's what's actually happening. In 17, uh, 1 and 2, it says, When Abraham was 99 years old. Anybody in here 99 years old? Not me. Okay. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So he comes to him and he gives a, a, another command to Abram. He tells him to be blameless, do what's right, so that I can make a covenant. And it's at this point that God changes Abram's name to Abraham. Then in verses 4-8, through God restates the covenant promises that He had made to Abraham. And nothing really changes. He's still going to be the father of many nations, have numerous descendants. Um, They're going to receive land. But now, in this chapter, we see a stipulation provided. And that is the sign of the covenant. Before, God had just told Abraham, go. Start walking. Now, he must continue to be obedient and do what God says. But there's also this new sign of the covenant. This is the circumcision of every male member of the family that in, in the family of Abraham. Whether they were born into the family, whether they were bought into the family, they had to be circumcised. Now, the word circumcision just means cut. And so, the symbol of the covenant is now the cutting of the foreskin of all the male children rather than the dividing of the carcasses. It's just another cutting. The cutting off represents the covenant and the promises. So this was just an outward sign of the covenant that God had made with His people. It's important to note again that Abraham was called. He was obedient. He was justified by faith before God all before circumcision was given. All of that before circumcision even existed. And so circumcision is just another sign of the covenant between God and Abram. Okay, so that that kind of gets us Almost to where we are today. So I want to look at all of that in its redemptive historical context. Remember, we're reading these true stories about true people. These things actually happened. We don't have to add to their stories or take away from their stories to learn about who God is. Because that's what what Scripture is. Scripture is God's revelation of Himself to us. So we can read these stories as plain as they are and we begin to learn about the nature and the character of God. We don't have to add to it. I'll show you. Um, the first thing we saw was a man unconditionally chosen by God and called out. God comes to this man, Abram, who, as far as we can tell, nothing about him is desirable at all. As a matter of fact, what we've learned about Abram so far is that he's a godless pagan, that he carries with him quite a bit of family drama. He's 75 years old when he starts this journey, and his wife is buried. So, so much for beginning this great nation of the people of God. All we can infer from reading this story is that God has chosen Abraham based solely upon no merit of his own. Abraham didn't do anything to get chosen or called by God. He wasn't a young, strong man. His his wife wasn't fruitful. His family life kind of stinks. If you follow him and Lot, I mean, there's always this, this trouble because Lot's just a, a, a loser and makes bad decisions... And so it's as though God just chose Abraham out of all the people on the earth for no other reason other than that's who he chose. That's all we know. He, just, he chose who he chose and we get to watch this story unfold as God uses a very unlikely man to fulfill a promise and to fulfill his purposes on the earth. So that's what we see. first thing is, is just a man who's unconditionally chosen based on no merit of his own. And that idea that God chose who he chose can be very closely tied into how God said my name is I am or I am that I am Yahweh. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I will do what I will do. I am who I am. I will choose who I will choose. This is all wrapped up in the very nature of who God is. Is that He just does what He does. And we we worship Him for it. And we, we adore Him for that. So, a man unconditionally chosen. And then in, in chapters... Twelve and fifteen and seventeen, we see these promised blessings, um, and they're basically all the same. He calls him in chapter twelve. He comes back and reminds him, "I'm still going to do what I what I said I was going to do." Um, and so, so don't don't fret. In chapter seventeen, he comes back, seals the deal with Abram, gives the sign of circumcision. Between the first contact and here, there had been. Quite a bit of drama and things had gone wrong with Abram and his family, and so it's kinda like God's coming back and remind him, you know, plan A is still on, it's still in effect, we're still going. Don't don't get bogged down. Don't don't worry, it's still gonna happen. So there's these promised blessings that God's given this man who has absolutely no merit for it at all. There's plans for a family. God says, I I'm still gonna I'm still gonna give you descendants as numerous as the stars. You're still going to have children. Your children are going to carry on your family name and legacy. Children are one of the most important things we could ever imagine as far as carry on our family name and legacy. In this time period, it was almost the worst thing you could imagine to not have children. And so he says, you're going to have children. Abraham and Sarah were old and barren and yet God confirmed that everything is still, it's still going. Just trust. It's still going to happen. The covenant also had implications for the whole earth. God told Abram that from his own family lineage would come blessings to all the families on the earth. Now Abram, there's no way he could have known what this would look like. Okay, He couldn't get on Google and find out the population of planet earth. He didn't know how many people this would encapsulate in his day. He didn't understand this, but he just took God's word and and God laid it out and Abraham believed and... And, and he continued to do what God told him to do. He also gave, gives him this covenant sign. I want to note again the, the terms and the conditions of these promises. Because there are many different views about how God was dealing with Abram and the people of God in the Old Testament. And how he deals with us now. And, and these sometimes these views contrast and people argue over these things. I'm just going to tell you like it says. Because some say God was dealing with Abraham purely... ...with a works-based covenant. Solely on the fact you do what I say I do and you will be blessed. So this means that the condition of obedience... ...and even more specifically the, the, the covenant and the circumcision... ...must be fulfilled in order to receive the promises. Now this is true, sort of. Yes, Abraham had to be obedient or the promises would not have come. And he did say, any male in your family who's not circumcised... ...will be cut off from the family. They will not inherit the promises... But there's also another aspect of the co- the covenant. I've already noted and said that Abraham was called, he was obedient, and he was justified by faith all before circumcision was given based on no merit of his own. Abraham was saved in the same way we are saved, by faith. He believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. So in this covenant and in its terms, we see... There are works. There is a works requirement. You have to be obedient and do what I say and and continue the circumcision. But there's also grace. And you are justified by faith alone in God. And being obedient is is an outward sign of that faith. The New Testament tells us that circumcision without a heart change is the same as uncircumcision. It's no different. So, and we'll, we'll read those passages later. So this this covenant has within it these two different streams of there's works, but there's also grace going right alongside of it. So it's, it's kind of a both and covenant. So all of that brings us to where we are today. We did skip over some of the story. Basically... What we read about is more family drama with Abram and Lot and, and these issues. Um, Abram and his wife decide to take this covenant into their own hands. In this day, it was completely normal for if, if a woman was barren and could not have children, the husband would sleep with the maidservant of the wife so that he could continue the family line and have children. That was just what you did in this culture. Um, and once again, Abram comes from a pagan culture. This is not, it's not like he was reading the Bible and finding out what he was supposed to do. There was no laws given at this point and so this is just a cultural norm of what they did and so he has a son but God comes to him and reminds him that this is not the way covenants work when I'm calling the shots and so he comes to him and says this kid Ishmael this is not the one sorry and so he changes his name to Abraham and gives him circumcision more family drama with Lot more traveling and then finally in Genesis chapter 21 Isaac is born this is the promised son between of, of the union of Abraham and Sarah, the man and the woman. God had promised them they would have children. And so Abraham is 100 years old at this point and it looks like finally God is actually going to come through with his promise. And so this is you can kind of imagine the kind of thought processes that are going on with these people and that's where we are in chapter 22. Isaac has been born. And by the end of the chapter, God comes back to restate His covenant promises. And what I want to notice first about this restating of the covenant is the occasion of the reestablishing of the covenant. That's where we're focusing is this this chapter 22. Like I said, the beginning of chapter 22 is, is, is... probably one of the most popular stories in all of scripture. This is where we read that God comes to Abraham and he says, I want you to sacrifice your son on an altar to me. This one son that that God had promised to Abraham Abraham and Sarah and, and Abraham had waited and waited and waited and even tried to go another route and God said, no, I'm giving you a son. Trust me, he gives him the promised son and then God says, I want you to sacrifice your son on an altar for me. I want you to kill your son. So, the first thing we should understand about this covenant and the occasion here is that it was over sacrifice. If you know the story, Abraham, Abraham packs up everything and he goes, he's being obedient. God told me, so I'm going to go. And he gets the wood and, and the knife and everything. And him and Isaac go up the mountain and, and he's getting ready to sacrifice him. And, and the angel of the Lord comes and, and stops him right before he's about to kill his son Isaac on the altar. And God provides a ram. For the sacrifice caught in a thicket. Interesting note. That when Isaac said, Father we have the wood and we have the knife. But where's the animal for the sacrifice? Abraham said, God will provide a lamb for the sacrifice. And then caught in a thicket is a ram for the sacrifice. So that kind of leaves us wondering, where is this lamb? So as Abraham unties Isaac, he goes and gets this ram caught in a thicket. He sacrifices the ram that God had provided. We hear the angel of the Lord come again to Abraham, and this is our passage that we're, that we're reading, and he's restating the covenant. We can imagine that this ram is still smoldering on the altar as God comes, and he says, and he, he restates his covenant and, and, and seals it once again. So. Over this sacrifice of this provided ram, God restates and solidifies His covenant once again. But notice there are a few differences. Like every time that God comes, there are a few differences. The first thing is the pawn. What I'm going to call the pawn of this deal. That is, look what is laid on the line as collateral. Collateral. To ensure that this covenant will be sought through to completion. In verse 16. And the the angel said. By myself I have sworn. Declares the Lord. The Lord swears by himself. That is on his own life. As it were. his, His own existence. His own being. This would be the same as if I made a deal. And I said I swear to you on my life. That I will do this. And if I don't do this you can take my life. Except of course this is God speaking. This is the God of the universe. The, the, the ultimate reality of all that is real. The the, the source of all that is, that is being in existence. He comes and he says, I'm on my life, on who I am. I swear by myself that this covenant will happen or I'm not God. I'm willing to put my own existence on the line to back that up. Now this is a very serious word. This is a very serious covenant. If Abram or Abraham and Sarah, had ever doubted before, surely this is cleared up now. This man and this woman would never again giggle when they hear God's promise. Because He says, on my life, I'm making this covenant with you. By myself, I am promising. So that's kind of the pawn. God's own self is on the line here. Notice also the reason for restating this covenant. He says, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. God says, because you have been obedient, because you have exercised your faith, I will surely bless you. Nothing's changed. He's still going to bless him. It's always been the plan to bless him. But because you have once again shown you are in this with everything that you are, I will surely bless you. So that's the reason he had trusted God. He, he probably thought that, well, I'll just kill Isaac and God will raise him back from the dead. God can do this. He'll raise him back from the dead and we'll come back down from the mountain. He told his servants that we'll be back. You stay here, we'll be back. He, he believed that, him and, that Isaac and him would, would walk back down the mountain. So he thought either something's going to happen, I'm going to kill him, he's going to be raised back to life, something. But he believed, he trusted God, and God, because of his faith, reaffirms the same covenant promises. He promises him that that he would have innumerable offspring, which is no different than what has always been the promise. But then he adds this line in verse 17. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens... And as the sand that is on the seashore. So that's kind of what's been the case so far. But listen to this. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. Now if you're using another translation. It might use the word there. Instead of his. In verse 17. And it might even have a footnote that says. Or there. So. We, can, we don't have to do a whole lot with that right now. Um, in Hebrew, there is an implied third person, singular, masculine pronoun. That's the word his, where I come from. So that can work out in several different ways, and we know that even in our language, when we, we address some things, uh, feminine or masculine, that they don't, they're not necessarily a boy or a girl, like a boat. A lot of people have a boat, and they'll say, she, even though a boat is not a boy or a girl. So you see how that can work, but we can, we'll leave that alone for right now. So that's kind of another difference in this part of the covenant. So there's the reason. Because Abraham was obedient, he come and ratifies the covenant and seals the covenant again and adds those lines. Now, we're talking about literal and figurative interpretation. So we're learning about redemptive history. We don't have to take anything away from this story to see the nature of God. So let's look at that first. Just the literal, just plain as day, what it says and what happened. Um... God promised that, he would, that Abraham would be the father of many nations. He told them that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars. In this reference, as, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Uh, this, both of these ways of saying are just metaphoric ways of saying, you're not going to even be able to count how many kids you have and how many offspring you have. They're going to be so numerous you can't even count how many they are. You will be the patriarch of a people that is unable to be numbered. These are known as the Jewish people. There are still Jewish people being born to this day from the line of Abraham. They are still being born. its It would be virtually impossible to number how many people have come from this one man. Abraham wasn't a Jew. He was a pagan. That's just a side note to keep in your mind. But the Jewish people come from him and there's no way we could know how many he's had. So thats it's come true. It's It's promised. Um, Secondly, in the covenant, God repeated that He's going to have this promised land. That he's going to conquer this land called Canaan. That would be an inheritance to Abram and all his offspring. And in this last reiteration of the covenant, he says that his offspring will possess the gate of his enemies. This is another way of saying your descendants will conquer your enemies as you go in to take over this land that God has given you. And if you keep on reading in the Old Testament, we'll get there, in the book of Joshua, they go into the land of Canaan and they begin to conquer the people that are there, these people who were rebellious and and and, and 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 not God's people, and they come in and they take over these people, they conquer. It literally happened in history as it is recorded. We can read it and we can note. They did this. This actually happened. Now, it's important to note that they didn't conquer all of the people, not because they couldn't, but because they chose not to. They left some of the people and made them slaves, and that ended up ultimately being to their demise but they did. They were conquer, conquerors of their enemies. Um, God also promised Abraham in this covenant that he would be a blessing to the nations. He told him that all the families of the earth, that's us, we're in this, would be blessed through Abraham. Through his offspring. And this one it says, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. This was to happen as God's people were obedient to God's commands in the land of Canaan. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, God tells them, If you will go into this land and you will be obedient and you will remain separate from the surrounding nations, if you will will refuse to pollute yourselves with the gods and the idolatry of the surrounding nations, that I will use you as a beacon to draw people to me because of your obedience. And the foreign nations would see this people who's completely different from everybody else. And they would worship God because of that. Now we know that this is where the children of Israel failed. Miserably. And that goes back to the fact that they didn't conquer all of the nations. If there had been no other nations there, they couldn't have been absorbed into those nations. But they didn't kill them all, they left them. And so there there became this mixture and all of a sudden they're worshipping false gods, they're they're marrying and intermarrying into these foreign nations they did exactly the opposite of what they were commanded to do they didn't keep themselves apart they didn't honor the Lord in scriptural language they whored after the false gods of these nations and ultimately were taken captive into Babylon they failed to keep up their side of the covenant they didn't keep the law of God notice they failed God did not fail they failed they failed They didn't hold up their end of the deal, and so they were absorbed into the surrounding nations. Abraham was obedient, and so God would bless him. Blessing was based on obedience. They disobeyed, and so they were exiled. And this is the the works side of that covenant. Remember, you've got to be obedient, or you won't get the blessing. So there is a works side of this covenant. And there were only a few of these... Hebrew people who were released and allowed to go back to their country. This we we call the, the remnant of the tribe of Judah. A very small number of them were allowed to go back, rebuild the city of Jerusalem, rebuild the temple to God and worship there. This is a true story. True people, real events. It really happened, just like it says. Now, if you continue reading in the Old Testament, after the children of Israel consistently break God's law, they fail to meet the terms of the covenant... God speaks to them through the prophets and He says that He's going to establish a new covenant with His people. The new covenant would be a continuation of the first covenant. It would would differ in how the stipulations of obedience would be carried out. But listen to this. The stipulations of obedience would be carried out. There is still a works requirement to be a part of the family of God. And God by giving the law, had shown them that they were unable to do anything obedient. They were unable to keep His commands. He gave them the law just to show them, you can't meet my standards. And so, we'll come back to that in a minute, but that's what happens in the rest of the Old Testament. Now we move on to the spiritual fulfillment of this story. Remember, Jesus said that He did not come to do away with these things but rather to help them, to bring them to their truest light, to help us to understand them in their fullest intended meaning. And that is the light of the redemptive historical narrative and God's plan of salvation. We can read this stuff and that's where we should go. And so what we're left with by the end of the Old Testament is a people, a small group of people who are the the descendants of Abraham, who have failed to be what they were supposed to be. God had made this covenant. He had restated the covenant based on the obedience of Abraham, but his offspring didn't obey. They were not obedient to the law. That doesn't mean that God had let down his, this covenant. He didn't just say, scratch it, we'll find out something new. Okay, They failed. He didn't. He made a covenant, and so he is going to see it through. So instead, during the time of the prophets, like I said, God begins to speak about this new covenant. And and this new covenant retains some of the aspects of the first one. But as we will see, it's much, much better. So, this new covenant is fulfilled in Jesus. When Jesus comes, He comes to bring the old covenant to its fullest meaning. And He does this just like we saw last week in His life, His death, His resurrection, His second coming. That includes this, this covenant with Abraham... And we've, we've read multiple times in 1 Corinthians where Paul says all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Every one of them, every promise God has ever made is yes in Jesus. It is fulfilled in Jesus. So that's how this works. All of the promises that God has ever made to Abraham, to David, to Isaac, to any person in history is fulfilled and find its yes, its completion in this man Jesus from Nazareth that could be in his life and his death and his resurrection His second coming it could be in all of it that we have to study the old testament and we have to study the new testament and all that it teaches us about Christ to see how this works in Luke 22:20 20 at the last supper as Jesus as they as they drank the wine of the last supper Jesus says this this, is, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So what we learn there is from Jesus' own words that this, the new covenant promises are sealed in His blood. That means that in His death, the new covenant will be solidified, ratified, and finished. In the old covenant, it was the cutting of animal carcasses, and then it was the circumcision Of the foreskin, and then Isaiah said that, speaking of the Messiah, that he would be cut off from the land of the living. So you've got the cutting of the animals, the cutting of the foreskin, and the cutting of the Son of God. His death is the seal that ratifies this covenant. This is my blood of the covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood. My blood seals this covenant. I would argue that the old covenant and the new covenant both have ties to the same Abrahamic covenant. God had given Abraham these covenant promises and they were enacted when Abraham was obedient. Because Abraham obeyed, God restated the covenant. Remember the reason for the covenant. So yes, God made promises. And yes, Abraham was to be obedient. But remember, he was justified by faith before circumcision. Before the sign was given, he was counted righteous because he believed God. So now Jesus comes and and he's he's saying his death, my death, my blood will seal this new covenant. That is that the death of Jesus on the cross purchased the new covenant promises for God's people. You don't make a covenant with just hopefully somebody. You make a covenant with somebody So Jesus' blood and his death on the cross purchased the new covenant promises for God's people. Remember, Abraham obeyed and so the blessings would come. Obedience is still required by God to be included in the promises. If Abraham would have disobeyed, he wouldn't have got the blessings. His offspring disobeyed, they didn't get the blessings. It's still required. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has come and did all the obeying for us. If we simply believe, it's yours. Your, my obedience becomes yours. So there is a works requirement for the law and for the covenants, but, it, but Jesus has done it. Jesus' obedience becomes our obedience by faith. So if someone says, are you saved by faith or by works? You can say, well, sort of, kind of both, because it was Jesus' works that I put my faith in that saves me. So you see how those covenants kind of run together. So we are saved in the same way Abraham was, by believing in God, by believing on the name of Jesus. So Jesus' death, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is the, the sealing of this new covenant. So I want to unpack that just like I did the old one. Let's look at the occasion of this new covenant. A death has taken place. Christ has gone to the cross out of obedience to the Father. Because Jesus was obedient even to death, the covenant promises are applied. Where God had expected, or Abraham had expected God to provide a lamb, but found a ram instead, Jesus comes as the Lamb of God that we had been hoping for, as the promised sacrifice. The occasion of this new ratification of the new covenant is the death of the Lamb of God. Abraham said, God will provide a lamb. And instead he found a ram. This is the lamb. Jesus is the lamb that God provided. So that's the occasion. A death has taken place. Notice again the pawn of the new covenant. In Genesis 22, God promised on his life by myself... He said that this covenant would be saw through to completion. At Calvary, the Son of God lays down His own life to seal the deal on this new covenant so that the covenant promises would be fulfilled. He swore by Himself and it was by Himself that the covenant was sealed and applied to God's people. Thirdly, notice the reason that the covenant was ratified and fulfilled. See, for Abraham it was according to his obedience. Because he was obedient and trusted the Lord, God would carry out the covenant. At Calvary, Jesus is obedient to death, even death on a cross. Because of the obedient representative head of mankind, God's covenant is sealed. The new covenant is sealed in the blood of Jesus. Are we saved by... By, by grace or by works well it's kind of both because Jesus did the works and we put our faith in his works and that's God's grace that saves us through our faith so it's kind of a both and just like the old covenant if Jesus had not died for our sins we would not have salvation but because he was obedient and was obedient even to death on a cross we can be saved if we will believe on his name so it's, it's still a both and now there are a few implications of the spiritual, spiritual fulfillment of this covenant that are important for us. The historical context is important because that's where we learn about the nature of God, the character of God, the nature of Christ's work for us. That's where we learn why He had to do what He did. We learn why Jesus had to die. We learn why Jesus was obedient. We learn why Jesus had to be cut off from the land of the living. Without knowing these Old Testament stories and the Old Covenant foundations, we might be tempted to make assumptions about the saving work of Christ that discredit the work that He's done for us. And so we we have to know those stories, but the spiritual implications are equally as important. And I would hope that we're all sitting here and we're, we're thinking, Hey, I want to be a part of that new covenant, people. I want, to, I want those promises. I want that applied to me. I would hope that would be everyone's prayer here. But we got to know what this means for us as 21st century American Christians. Like I've already said, this new covenant and the promises were sealed in the blood of Jesus. <laughs> That means that when Jesus died on the cross, He was paying for the covenant promises to be applied to God's people. So the question is, what are some of those new covenant promises? I'm just going to read two little passages from the Old Testament up here. Um, Jeremiah 31, 33 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Again in Ezekiel 36, 26. It says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. So in those Old Testament prophecies, we read about the benefits of this new covenant. As you can see, there are specific promises made to specific people called Israel. So it isn't like Jesus just died on the cross hoping somebody might get saved someday. You know, well I'll go, you know, maybe, maybe somebody will believe. I just hope that somebody gets saved after all this work. That's not what happened. God had a specific people in mind when Jesus died on the cross. His blood purchased specific benefits for specific people. And it's here that we learn of the special special covenant love that God has for His people. I've said it before. All the ladies in here, I love you all to death, but I love my wife even more. I have a covenant love with her. This is how God's love works. There's, there's something special about a covenant. Just like God chose... Abraham, out of all the people of the earth, he has chosen out all of his people. Don't ever let anybody tell you that Jesus died on the cross just so somebody might get saved. Just to open up the opportunity. Well, the door's open. Hope hope some people get saved. No, sir. God died, or Jesus died for a specific people. He purchased the covenant promises for a covenant people. You don't make a covenant with just, I hope somebody. You make a covenant with a people. If that were the case, then there might be the option that maybe nobody would get saved. And at the end of time, God's like, well, we waited as long as we could. Nobody got saved. We'll just go back to what we were doing. No. He died for specific covenant people. In the same way that the children of Israel were supposed to obey God and be a beacon to the nations, now we are to continue to be that light to the nations. Rather than drawing them inward, we are sent outward by the Great Commission to share the gospel and to to make disciples of all of the nations. Jesus' blood, we read in Revelation, ransomed the people from every tribe and nation and tongue on earth, which means we are to go and find those people, proclaim the gospel to them boldly, without fear, knowing that they will repent and come to Jesus, because He's bought it. They're, They're sealed. So here's the question though That I'm sure some of you are thinking you, should pay attention. you said those new covenant promises Were made to Israel But I'm an American I live here How do I get in I mean I want the promises I want to be in God's people You said Israel How do I get in Because if the promises were made to Israel Then what does this have to do with us We're Americans I'm not Jewish I'm not a, I have no ties to those people at all That I know of but the same people who see no continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament or the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are the same people that would say all that stuff, that's for the Jews. We're different. We're the church. We're, we're a different group. So they would claim that, that the election of God's people and the covenant love that God has was made to Jewish people only and we're separate. This is, that's not talking about us. The problem with that type of thinking is that the Bible teaches us something different. And we have to read it all to understand it all. If that were true, then only those who were the offspring of Abraham directly and who were circumcised and who are completely and 100% obedient to the law that God gave Moses would be the only people that went to heaven. They would be the only ones who were considered God's people. But we know that Abraham was called... And he was justified long before circumcision, long before the law was ever given. We've said that multiple times, and so even those from Abraham's lineage who maybe they were circumcised, if they didn't obey the law, they're they're not God's people. You are you're not God's people. They were not saved if they didn't believe. So the question is, how is a person saved? Is it by being circumcised or is it by having faith? How do I get into God's people? Do I need to be circumcised or do I need to have faith? Do I need to obey the law or do I need to trust Jesus? I'm glad you asked. In the book of Galatians, I'm going to read a bunch from Galatians in in little sections. Uh, Chapter 5, verses 3 and 4 says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. And then in verse 6 of the same chapter, For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. In Romans chapter 2, verses 25-29, through Paul says, For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. So if you're going to go that route, the obedience route... Hey, you've got that option. Just be completely, perfectly obedient to the law of God from the day you're born to the day you die. You'll go to heaven. I can't do that. I've already failed that. So obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code, that's the law... And and circumcision, but break the law. Listen to this. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward, but physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter or the law. His praise is from man. Or is not from man, but from God. So if I can count my salvation as, well, yeah, I got that surgery done when I was a little baby. Praise, praise my doctor. No, this says it has got to come from God. It's got to be by the Spirit, which we can't control. It's got to be something happening in here. So what we see is, is that circumcision was never the point. Ever. It's never been the point. It was just an outward sign. The true test was the inward change. Paul goes on in Romans 4. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. I'm to stop there because some people will say, it was circumcision in the Old Testament, now we're the New Testament. But every situation where you read about this in the New Testament, they don't go back to Matthew chapter 1. They go back to the Old Testament and tie it together. So, don't think that. I just now thought that would be smart to say How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Before. It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal to the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That's the Gentiles. So that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised. Who are not merely circumcised. But also who walk in the footsteps of the faith. That our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So all that is saying. The reason circumcision happened was because Abraham was justified by faith before he was circumcised and then he believed in him after he was circumcised so that he could be the father of all who would be saved by faith without circumcision and those who would believe with circumcision. So Abraham has these two lines coming from him that are his offspring, but it's, it's always faith and, a, and, and the promise of God. So to answer the question, who are God's people? We say, those who trust in God. Those who believe, those who have faith in Jesus, we get in the same way Abraham did. Unconditional free election. God chooses, Jesus pays for our sin and secures the new covenant with us or for us in His blood. And the Holy Spirit applies the work of salvation to our hearts so that we can believe. And our praise is not to man, but to God. In Galatians chapter 3 again verse 7 Paul says know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the gentiles by faith that's us preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying in you all the nations shall all the nations or in you shall all the nations be blessed so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith And then uh, verse 16 of the same chapter. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings. Referring to many. But referring to one. And to your offspring. Who is Christ. Skip down a little more to verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ. If you are Christ's. Then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And Paul in Romans 9, one of the the biggest and most clear chapters about this unconditional election of God, says this: But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Because people will say, Well, God made a covenant, and the Jews, they don't believe. Does God let His covenant go? And Paul says, It's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are His offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh. Because that would have included Ishmael. Who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So who's a real Jew? I am. I believe in God. I, my faith is in Jesus. We are. If you are a believer, you are a true Israelite. See, this is a, a massive truth that so many people have twisted and mangled to their own misunderstanding and their own demise. To misunderstand this truth, you misunderstand the promises of God, the faithfulness of God, the unswerving allegiance of God to His own promises. To his own name, the beauty of God and the salvation of His people. If you if you miss this, it's like yeah, Jesus died so that you know I can I can get, pull myself up by my bootstraps and get saved someday. That's not what happened. If you are in Christ today, if you have repented of your sin and trusted Jesus as your Savior, then you are a true Israelite. You are a true child of the promise. You are the spiritual offspring of Abraham. And all of the covenant promises belong to you. God is your God and we are His people. Jesus died for you. He paid for the benefits of the covenant with His blood. And nothing can ever change that. Because it's a covenant sealed in His blood. If you're not a believer and you're thinking, well, are these benefits mine? I mean, how do I know? If if God has chosen, I mean, how do I know? I'm kind of worried about what I should be doing. Is there something I should be looking for? The answer is believe. Believe. It's as simple as that. Trust in Jesus. If you will believe, you will be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Repent of your sin and turn to Jesus. If you won't, you will not be saved. It's that easy. You believe in Jesus or you don't. Believe in the name of Jesus and you will be saved. Let's pray.